world is burning. Welcome to World is Burning, the storytelling podcast for your climate anxiety. I'm Elise. And I'm Olivia. And I'm going to start off by talking about the f- like the flea bag era mm-hmm. and the <laughs> how everyone's talking about that at least on on TikTok and how it relates to climate because I think it's super super interesting. Mm-hmm. We obviously have our own stories that have nothing to do with flea bag, but I just thought that that was would be a fun place to start. Yeah, off. it's also it's kind of surprising that we haven't explicitly talked about feminism and climate change because those two. Like climate activism, mm-hmm. especially because those two come up so often together. But mm-hmm. yeah, like so the flea bag era, if you've seen these TikToks or I don't know if it originated on TikTok or what, but it's like the sort of like separating the basically the last 15 years into different eras of feminism. So like uh-huh. girl boss era, kind of girls, like what was that? I guess it was hashtag girl boss, the, the yeah, book. The Sophia. Amoruso. Yes. And just like, let's just take what the patriarchy's been doing, but make it pink. It's girls now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah literally that. And then, yeah, Flea Beggar. Maybe you can explain it better. I don't know. There's an article by Emmeline Klein, and she basically coins this term dissociative feminism for kind of what a lot of us are experiencing right now or as being portrayed in media where it's like you can kind of be a piece of shit you can kind of be like make fun of yourself take things lightly kind of like don't take things too seriously don't worry about the consequences of your actions kind of do what you want and be a little bit of a mess yeah um (laughs) which also like in with covid and everything i think so much has happened like it's really easy for dissociating to see very appealing. Mm-hmm. I know at least during the first months of the pandemic, I absolutely just like fantasized about the book A Year of Rest and Relaxation mm-hmm. and how that sounded so good. <laughs> yeah, which is listed as like a classic example of dissociative mm-hmm. feminism. Um, something I liked, there was another article on Lithium Magazine that we both read. That said mm-hmm. the, the fleabag era trend as it romanticizes self-destruction is inherently dangerous to both the fleabag woman and to the other people implicated in her destructive quest. And like, yes, I feel like especially a couple years ago, if we're talking about like film and television shows, there was this mm-hmm. obsession with having women who were not role models, who were like multifaceted characters. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, something that they said about dissociative feminism is that the the theme that ties it all together is this passivity and then that mm-hmm. that passivity is a tenant of white feminism. And so yes. it's this idea that like if you're able to, it says to be able to approach feminism in a nihilistic way is to be incredibly privileged. And like, mm-hmm. so my year of rest and relaxation is exactly that. Yes. Like this woman who has like a New York apartment for, you know, a year and can just like, drug herself into oblivion like her parents die and she has this money and she's like I have enough money to not do anything for like a couple of years and mm-hmm. I can put everything on auto pay and just like black out for a year yeah so many of us at least myself have had that like fantasy of let's just like stop everything mm-hmm. for a year and or yeah. whatever and just not engage like be unconscious yeah for a couple months at least but yeah again I think it's interesting to see white feminism turn from girl boss and like the vision of personal success going into this 
other version of like, I don't care anymore, Mm -hmm. which is not helpful to anyone. Mm -hmm. That's not a mentally healthy place to be. It might feel better in the moment than like confronting problems, whether they're your own or like a global issue. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not going to make you feel mentally healthy. And it's also bad for everyone. Yeah. So we have a couple examples of non-dissociative non-dissociative feminism (laughs) or like I feel like this like dissociative feminism has been like around for like a little bit so like what is the next era Mm -hmm. of feminism what is that going to look like how can we shape it Mm -hmm. into something that is constructive is intersectional and is like (laughs) mentally healthy yeah what does that look like what can that look like how has that looked in the past? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a, the whole thing is like not shaming those last two like eras of feminism because they mm-hmm. like brought us to where we are right now. And they're like, I feel like ones that have been very cathartic for me, at least like growing yeah. up as like a young woman in those mm-hmm. last decade. But it's so exciting to think about like, what is the future? Yes. So I am so excited. <laughs> I'm talking about Jane Fonda, um, who is mm-hmm. a feminist icon. I'll know who she is. It was almost just like difficult for me to just narrow this down to like a couple of things that I wanted to talk about because her life is so just like rich and interesting. Um, But before Mm -hmm. I get into that, let me name my sources. So a big inspiration or a big source for me was the documentary directed by Susan Lacey called Jane Fonda and Five Acts that came out in 2018. Um, There were also a bunch of really interesting interviews, some with InStyle, Harper's Bazaar, Time Magazine, Green Matters. Washington Post, Jane Fonda's website was another source, Wikipedia, if I didn't already say that. And yeah, um, there were even more (laughs) articles that I like had to X out of because I don't have time for that. But she did a really interesting interview in Grist recently, too. So I recently watched the documentary Jane Fonda and Five Acts, which is really beautiful and inspiring. Jane is someone who's experienced so much in her life and been in so many parts of American culture. So I think she's like a really interesting person to kind of analyze and look Mm -hmm. back on. I was surprised, although I guess I shouldn't have been, to see that climate activism specifically only got like two minutes at the very end of the film, which to be fair. Interesting. um, The film came out in 2018. It's already like very dense with like a lot of different eras of her life and then her more organized climate activism really started in like 2019 okay um although she's been doing different forms of active climate activism for decades and activism is so central to her life and her career that the film is very much centered on that anyways Mm -hmm. so the documentary is called jane fonda and five acts and i kind of want to tell you about her sixth act but before i get there i have to Mm -hmm. go through the basics so jane seymour fonda was born in new york city on December 21st, 1937, to the socialite, I can't speak, um, Francis Ford Seymour and actor Henry Fonda. She's named after the third wife of Henry VIII, um, who she's distantly <laughs> related to. Okay. And I mean, I have to, I don't know. I get like so interested by people that kind of grow up in this like charmed movie star world. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, Uh, That world also amplified a lot of issues and unrest in her life. Um, Mm. Her father was not very present in her life. Her mother suffered from depression and died by suicide when Jane was only 12 years old. Um, Jane became interested in the arts as a teenager, acting in plays and becoming a model. But she wasn't really sure what she wanted to do long term. 
So she went to college, dropped out, and ended up coming home where she met Lee Strasberg, who um, she said, I went to the actor's studio and Lee Strasberg told me I had talent, real talent. That was the first time that anyone except my father, who had to say so, told me I was good at anything. It was a turning point in my life. I went to bed thinking about acting. I woke up thinking about acting. It was like the roof had come off my life. And I love that because it might seem obvious that she would pick acting considering who her father was. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if anything, it sort of pushed her away. She said, my dad never came home from his work carrying joy. I never got the sense that he found joy in his work. So why would I want to be an actor? Especially if he Hmm. like wasn't a super present father for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, if Lee Strasberg, who's like an icon, I think he like pretty much invented method acting. If he tells you that you have talent, then obviously you're going to yeah. do something with that. That's going to mean something to you. Um, so she started acting. And of course, her name afforded her certain opportunities, but she also had to get used to an extra level of scrutiny because of it. Um, mm. So through the 1960s, she worked on dozens of films, including the very sexy 1968 film Barbarella. Um, which kind of solidified her as a sex symbol. Um, mm-hmm. She also modeled a fair bit. I mean, if you look at old photos of Jane Fonda, she still right now is an icon, beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful person. But like in the 1960s, she just had this like otherworldly thing. She also mm-hmm. married a French director and was living in France for the time and like had a lot of that French new wave like look. I mean, she's just so, yeah. so, so beautiful. So I say all of this to set the stage for her activism. Although she was an active supporter of activist groups dating back to the 1960s and possibly earlier, um, including hosting Black Panther fundraisers in her home and visiting Native American protesters, she wasn't at the forefront until the early 1970s. Um, This is how she put it. She said, back in the 70s, when I first got involved in activism, I wasn't very happy or proud of myself. We were still in the Vietnam War, and I saw so many people who were giving their lives to something far greater than themselves. I had just been a passive, slightly hedonistic celebrity. It didn't sit well with me, you know? Maybe it would have been fine if it had been the 50s, when everyone else was passive too, but I was living at France at the time of the war, and because of what was swirling around me, I felt I needed to better understand what was happening. So I met with American soldiers who had been in Vietnam, and right away, I knew that I had to participate in ending what was so clearly a tragic error. And so my husband at the time, Tom Hayden, and I moved back to the United States and to join the anti-war movement, which I can't talk about Tom Hayden too much because like, we don't have time, but have you mm-hmm. seen the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7? Uh, the, the movie? Mm-hmm. It was like an Aaron Sorkin movie. It came out in 2020. No, was there was there a show about it? I think there might have been also a show. I think I watched the show. Okay. Well, I, I haven't watched the show, but in the movie, he's played by Eddie Redmayne. He was like a very prominent anti-war activist. Okay. And like after she got divorced from her first husband, who was a French director, she married him. And like he, he was just a very prominent person in this war movement. And so... Mm-hmm. It's interesting in the documentary, it's like Jane and five acts and it's like like her childhood, three men that she was with. And then the last act is like Jane Fonda era. Mm-hmm. And she's interviewed in it and like she had very much a active role in choosing to separate it that way. And she's like sort of resentful sometimes of how much her husbands and partners like influenced her in terms mm-hmm. of like where her life meant. But it's also kind of amazing. Like it's just 
it shows that she has this like capacity to like take on issues and like I don't know be interested by all different types of things like she becomes this icon and like French new wave and then also becomes an anti-war activist and then like also ended up marrying like a media mogul later on it's just like all of these different lives that she had would I be wrong in saying that like she's almost drawn to people about that embody what she's passionate Mm -hmm. about like at the time so it seems almost like that's a result of like her as opposed to like oh I'm just gonna like lose my personality yeah like whatever this other person is doing yeah no definitely she had her own like agency in that completely and so it's just like cool to see like how specifically she went through these like different eras of her life and then like Mm -hmm. partners and I'm sure like other people in her life came in and out of it all throughout so that was sort of her inspiration to really get involved in the anti-war movement she saw everything happening from afar in France so she came home and she went on a nationwide speaking tour about the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. So the aim of the tour was specifically to recruit veterans to participate in the Winter Soldier investigation, which was a media event that would bring light to the war crimes and atrocities being committed in Vietnam through the stories of its veterans. Um, So it was supposed to take place in like late January, early February over a weekend in 1971. So this quickly put her already such a public figure under the eye of government surveillance. Um, The first speaking event took place at a college in Canada and on the way home Jane's luggage was seized and searched Hmm. she described it this way they discovered a large bag containing little plastic envelopes marked in red nail polish BLD signifying breakfast lunch and dinner that contained the vitamins that I took with each meal they confiscated that as well as my address book which was photocopied and arrested me for drug smuggling I told them what they were but they said they were getting orders from the White House. That would be the Nixon White House. I think they hoped that this so-called scandal would cause the college speeches to be canceled and ruin my respectability. Hmm. I was handcuffed and put in Cleveland jail, um, which is where the mugshot was taken. And she said, I had just finished filming Clute. So yes, it was the Clute haircut. Um, so I sent, Elise, I sent you this photo. I'll yes. put it on our social mm-hmm. media. Um, I'm sure many people have already seen it, especially, well... I mean, especially if you live through those decades, but even not. Mm-hmm. It's a photo, a mugshot of Jane Fonda, black and white, um, holding her fist up in like the people power stance. And she has this basically like a mullet. It's her mm-hmm. haircut from that show. Um, or sorry, from that movie. And apparently like after this came out, people were like trying to get the clue haircut. Like I think it might have mm-hmm. also kind of helped in like popularizing that as like an iconic style. Yeah, because this mugshot has become iconic. You never see people's hands in mugshots because they're usually handcuffed, which she also was. But Jane Fonda is double jointed in her hands. So she was able to slip her hand out of the handcuff in order to make a fist in the mugshot. And she was like, I think they were just so surprised like they didn't do anything about it. That's awesome. It's crazy. And then even um, she was on. I don't know. She talked about this on a couple of late night shows. It was either. Jimmy Fallon or Seth Meyers where she like he I think it was Jimmy Fallon gave her like these tiny handcuffs and she slides her hand like right into it because she can uh, I mean she's double jointed so she can just gotcha. move it up right in that's so funny it's like that's insane and I love that and I love that she also thought to do that mm-hmm. because I don't think she had ever been arrested before 
Um, so before that, she was questioned by, she could have said, two FBI chaps um, who wouldn't let her call a lawyer or rise from the chair. So after hmm. three hours, this is initially from being detained for supposed drug smuggling. After mm-hmm. three hours, she tried to push aside an agent blocking the way to the bathroom and was arrested for assaulting an officer in addition mm. to drug smuggling. Um, she was released on bond and the pills were tested with taxpayer money, she likes to point out, um, mm-hmm. which it was found out that they were, in fact, vitamins. Not much of yeah. a surprise. The results were kind of like hidden in the back of a newspaper months later, though by that point, of course, the media attention had already moved on. Yeah. Ironically, the press over the false drug smuggling charges created unintended publicity for the U.S. portion of the speaking tour. Because remember, she'd only done one date okay. in Canada and was coming down to the U.S. to recruit more veterans. Um, so between two and 10,000 people showed up to each event. Presumably huh. not all veterans, but still like a huge amount of people that are coming yeah. in. Yeah. Um, the Winter Soldier investigation took place in January of 1971. It was sponsored by the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And although it was very much a veteran-led event, Jane Fonda's participation in fundraising and performing, as well as celebrity participation from people like Crosby and Nash and comedian Dick Gregory, um, helped bring money and publicity publicity to the event, which was largely mm-hmm. ignored by mainstream media. Um, so not to give like more credit than is due to them or that they would even want, but like it is meaningful that they use their celebrity to bring again, publicity to the event. Mm -hmm. The event was challenging the morality and conduct of the war by showing the direct relationship between military policies and war crimes in Vietnam. I just am always thinking back to the story that you did last year on Trento Na and um, Mm -hmm. Agent Orange. Yes. And like, it's interesting to see a little, know a little bit more about like the anti-war effort in the U.S. that was happening Mm -hmm. at that same time. I forget the exact year of Agent Orange, but it's possible that it was ended up happening after this. I think it started in like 64. Oh, yeah. It was Kennedy. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, how much that is all like connected. Mm-hmm. So for her activism, Jane was regularly targeted by government officials, including sly comments from presidents like Nixon and Reagan. The beginning of the documentary starts with like a tape of Nixon being like, I don't know. Henry Fonda must be ashamed to have her as a daughter, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. She said in response to that, she was like, I knew I was on the right track as a human being, despite what Nixon said. And so even though it was no fun having people shout nasty things about me, I wasn't going to go backwards either. I was part of a movement. The people around Mm -hmm. me didn't get as much attention or any of the vitriol, but they were my support. And I thought that was really cool because I was telling you before this, I love doing people stories. But the challenge mm-hmm. of people stories is that you never want it to seem like it's one person that's doing everything because it's this individualism that, yeah, as we talk about a lot, is so destructive to everything, especially American mm-hmm. individualism. But I love like she talks about individualism a lot and like how important the people around her were. So mm-hmm. and she also describes like she really got involved in activism at age 31 and has been very active since then. And she talks about like kind of finding her youth at that age and like Hmm. she's like oh in my 20s I was ancient I was super old because I like was kind of just going from thing thing I wasn't really passionate about anything but then when I found activism I became part of something and I became like fighting for something and that's what's kept me young I don't know I just love that 
Like that's not a direct quote or anything, but just like that idea. Yeah, especially in light of everything we talked about at the top of the episode. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That that made her feel like good and young and like yeah, so interesting. It honestly sounds like she spent a lot of her twenties being very disillusioned and just like sort of unmoored, like not knowing quite where to to go. Not only like professionally, mm-hmm. but then also in other parts of her life. And of course, mm-hmm. she was very like successful in terms of career and finances and love and like all of that Mm -hmm. during that time but I love that she describes even now she's like 84 now I think maybe 85 her birthday again is in December as we established Mm -hmm. but like that 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 has stayed with her for this long it's really cool Mm -hmm. so there's so much to cover about Jane she's dealt with a lot of backlash related to a photo of her in Vietnam that was deemed un-American I'm not going to get into that they talk about it a lot in the documentary which I really highly recommend okay Um, but she learned a lot of lessons the hard way Mm -hmm. another fun fact is that Jane Fonda's workout videos and franchising were entirely in support of her progressive of political activism I thought about making this the whole focus of my thing because like okay <laughs> it's uh, it's really interesting to hear her like motivations for starting the workout videos okay I'm going to tell you a little bit because it's so interesting so she used to really be into ballet and then she had some sort of injury that meant that she couldn't do ballet anymore and mm-hmm. she realized how few like aerobics exercises there were that were specifically for women so she went to this um one person's like studio in LA that was doing classes with women she was like this is amazing Mm -hmm. I think everyone should have access to this Mm -hmm. and so she started making like and she first made like a Jane Fonda workout book and then someone came to her with the idea Mm -hmm. to do like VCR videos okay and she was like no no one I know has a VCR that's like silly but she's like okay Mm -hmm. I'll do it because we're like we're in a recession right now and we're looking for money for the campaign for economic democracy which was a pact that she started with Tom Hayden um, so she's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll do it. And I'll, like, we'll give the proceeds. Maybe we'll make like a couple thousand dollars, whatever. She makes like $17 million or something and becomes like an <laughs> icon for and, yeah. and even more so. Like I, I personally knew who she was because of her workout videos before I mm-hmm. knew that she was a movie star or this daughter of Henry Fonda, like all of that. Yeah. So that's just super cool. And it's cool to know that that was like funding activism. Yeah. A couple of other organizations as well, like. Later, it supported the Hollywood Women's Political Committee, which she co-founded with people like Barbara Streisand. But all of this activism, or a lot of it, was directly or indirectly related to environmental issues and climate justice. So the Wikipedia for the Campaign for Economic Democracy describes itself as formed to promote new left issues such as rent control, reduction of water pollution, investing in solar power, and fighting against nuclear power advocating labor rights, women's rights, and various anti-war initiatives. And she like talks about putting solar panels on her house in like the 70s or the 80s. Like very early on was doing a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, she was a very active supporter of indigenous protesters since the early days of her activism. Um, but it wasn't until 2019 that she formed Fire Drill Fridays in collaboration with Greenpeace. So Green Matters reported on this. They said um, in October 2019, Fonda launched a weekly protest in collaboration with Greenpeace called Fire Drill Fridays after becoming inspired by Greta Thunberg and other young activists demanding a more aggressive governmental response to climate change. Fire Drill Fridays protesters would gather outside of the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to raise awareness of the worsening climate crisis and also demand that the U.S. use alternatives to fossil fuel 
as per the Green New Deal. I took her book out of the library on Libby um, last night, so just the virtual mm-hmm. version, and I really want to read it, but I unfortunately was not able to read it for this episode. Mm-hmm. But I love the dedication to the book, literally like before the first page. Um, mm-hmm. The book is called What Can I Do? The Path from, from Climate Despair to Action, um, and all the proceeds go to Greenpeace. She said, when I was young, I thought activism was a sprint, and I worked around the clock hoping for quick change. When I was older, I learned activism is a marathon, and I learned how to pace myself. At 82, I realize it is neither a sprint nor a marathon. It is a relay race. The most important thing we adults can do now is join and support the next generation of climate activists ready to lead the movement. It is to them I dedicate this book. That made me I love that. Kind of emo. It's so nice. There's a whole <laughs> section on like the Green New Deal. And mm-hmm. I think I kind of wanted to have a conversation with you about mm-hmm. celebrity activism. Okay. Because I feel like it so often falls flat or is just like short of what we would want. And I kind of want to explore <laughs> Gal Gadot singing. Uh, yeah, whatever imagine. that was. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, I feel like Jane Fonda just doesn't. Obviously, she's made some mistakes in her life. Not a perfect person. And I'm sure that, like, if you got into the innards of some of these organizing committees, I'm sure there are disagreements, whatever. But in my opinion, she's done an incredible job of using her celebrity Mm -hmm. for her activism. Mm -hmm. And so my theory was it has to do with a couple of things. And then I want to hear what you think, Elise. Okay. So I thought it was because she acknowledges her privilege and worldview I was watching an interview with her. It's called Seavu. It's a French, I don't know, interview show, which I was obsessed with. She also speaks like very good French. So I was okay. I got way down the rabbit hole of that. But she, even on that show, was acknowledging that her as an older woman now, if she gets arrested, she's going to get treated better, not only because she's famous, not only because she's white. Not only because she's a woman, mm-hmm. not only because of her age, but because of all of those things combined. Um, yeah. And she like so smoothly will connect like those kind of intersectional issues or like specific policies to like the more soundbitey parts of her life. She's like kind of a master of it, um, okay. you know, being like, oh, talking about my ex-husband, which people find interesting and then immediately tying that to like political activism or whatever. Uh-huh. Another thing I think she does is bring her fame, um, using her fame to bring attention to the cause rather than to herself. She also mm-hmm. partners with indigenous leaders and younger generations to directly target fossil fuel and big money instead of just like being obsessed with pet tech fixes, but not really like acknowledging like more frontline leaders. Mm-hmm. And she also, I think, doesn't fall flat because she engages politically without the fear of being disliked, stopping her. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm curious how you feel about that. Yeah, I think it's always so interesting to like see what celebrities are doing. Mm -hmm. Another person that I don't even know if it counts as activism, but I think it does because it has to do with a lot of like women's issues and stuff. But like another person who I always think is interesting to watch is Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. because she is like famous for not saying anything about political issues. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of changed that in the last few years with certain elections and whatnot. But I've always kind of liked watching her because she will not say anything. And then she'll be like, I'm giving $10,000 to like fix this issue for someone Mm -hmm. or like pay for their legal fees or just like do this thing and I think that's really cool because it's like she doesn't necessarily make a huge thing of it it's just like problem solved not 
mean, and it's not always like problem solved, but like yeah. I have it's kind of <laughs> I, I tweeted a while ago. I was like, let's make Taylor Swift a radical climate activist like I would live. Yeah, I as a background, I've been to every single tour of hers. I was a huge I mean, still am, but was a very huge Taylor Swift fan in high school. I know so uh-huh. much about her. It's ridiculous as many people our age do, especially younger white, white women. But anyways, um, I, I agree with you. I think that like I have a prediction that like in the next five years, she will get more involved in activism. Okay. Maybe I'm just willing that. Tag her, tag Taylor Swift in something. Just having seen her past stuff, like she seems like the kind of person where like, I don't know, there's some town that's in- experiencing like some sort of environmental yeah. issue and she could just be like, nope, not anymore. Yeah. Well, she gives so much money to her, like, yeah, different yeah. fans if they have, like student loans and stuff like that. A lot of LGBTQ mm-hmm. issues and like mm-hmm. also the campaigns against, um, oh my God, what's her name? The devil. Um, Martha. Marsha Blackburn. Marsha Blackburn. Sorry. Oh my gosh. How did I forget her name? She tortured me for <laughs> just ever, including now, but I guess I'm yeah. not a resident of Tennessee anymore. I don't think about her as much. Mm-hmm. But like she's been active in that way. But yeah, I agree with you. Sorry, I do realize so, that a little. <laughs> everyone tag Taylor Swift in your environmental post. Someone, get her. someone made a Twitter that that followed me that was like, it's like mixing Taylor Swift lyrics with um, it's like the IPCC report or something like that. Hold on. Let me see what it is. OK, but I thought it was really funny. I think it's like climate Taylor. Let me see. Which also not to get totally sidetracked, but like. I really, really loved the scene and I guess multiple scenes from Don't Look Up with Ariana Grande Mm -hmm. and like the benefit concert that they had and just like how celebrity activism and like raising money and all that can be so out of touch and just like absurd and what Mm -hmm. I thought that that was a really funny depiction of celebrity activism. Yeah, I agree. In the way it can be so over the top and also kind of like self centered and like (laughs) kind of like okay we're losing the plot of the activism Mm -hmm. I love that too and also I was so mad at myself I saw don't look up in theaters last month and music always makes me emotional that's just how I am you cry but I was like I was tearing up and I was like (laughs) Olivia this is not (laughs) what this is supposed to do but I was like this is so moving her voice is so beautiful but like also it started off really serious but then the lyrics got sillier and sillier mm-hmm. and I can't remember I can't remember what they were even about um, it's like turn off that shit box uh shit fox news <laughs> but like yeah in her highest note yeah it was just really silly yeah okay so just real quick the the twitter is climate t swift I don't know who made it but they um okay I was like one of the first people they followed probably because I mentioned Taylor Swift <laughs> And climate activism. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, let's make that happen because she's also someone who's so empathetic and so tied to like what her fans want. So anyways, uh-huh. let's just plant some seeds there. No, I love All that. I'm saying. Um, this is one last quote from Jane Fonda. Um, she said, I'm proud that for a privileged white woman who has faced more than her share of hostility, I'm still here trying to make a difference. I think that's good for people to see. You don't always have to be loved, but you have to take risks. You have to take leaps of faith. These days, that's mostly how I stay in shape. Leaps of faith instead of du- jumping jacks. <laughs> I just thought that was cute. I love that. That is really cute. <laughs> and also, um, the Fire Drill Fridays, like standing outside of D.C., um, or outside of the Capitol, that was the first time that she had gotten arrested since that initial mugshot um, mm. in Cleveland. So it's kind of crazy. And she... 
I don't know, she talks about civil disobedience being this thing that she was not her her first choice, but she said, like, if seeing Jane Fonda get arrested in front of the Capitol is going to make people pay attention, then I'm more than willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And she was the, like, she's been so active at Standing Rock, uh, No Dapple, that kind of stuff. She was also at line three. I saw her in her red coat mm-hmm. that she was like, she wears this really bright red coat that's like, I think the last piece of clothing or like, I don't know, the last outerwear. I'm not sure what this specific agreement is, but she's like, this is the last thing I'm going to buy. Um, and so wow. she's like trying to. That makes me that like a little bit makes me sad. Yeah. But also that's really cool. Yeah. She's like, it's the last thing she'd buy because there's too much consumerism. So maybe it wasn't yeah. like this is the last thing I buy before I die kind of thing. But gotcha, like, gotcha. I mean, I'm sure she's not hankering for clothing, nor is her like clothing yeah. size changing dramatically. So like, yeah, I, I have things like I have this, like I have a puffer coat that I'm like, I'll probably wear this till I die. Like, yeah. I'll probably be good. Like, I don't need another puffer coat. I'll wear this for the rest of my life, yeah. probably. So I, I feel that. Yeah, no, me too. And like, also, I don't know, I think colors are so important. So it's, it's like super bright red, mm-hmm. Um, not to say reminiscent of yeah. Trump hats, but is the same color and like kind of reclaiming that color and like also as an emergency, that bright red. Yeah. I, I love that. Also, you can like, I, I know I've like, I've certainly seen photos of her getting arrested in that coat. Mm-hmm. Like I, and so like, it's really visible. Like um you can really see Yeah, it. and she was wearing that at the treaty people gathering too. But yeah, she's an icon. Highly recommend mm-hmm. looking more into her life and participating in Fire Drill Fridays and just like following her. Mm-hmm. She's great. But yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I love her thing of you don't always have to be liked too Mm -hmm. and also I feel like that mentality has gotten her to be incredibly like yes so I did a bit of digging for this week's episode because I just really wanted to do a story based out of Australia Mm -hmm. because I feel like we've brought Australia up several times on the podcast because it was like massively on fire a couple years ago and just is like generally on fire Mm -hmm. and We talk about mention it, but have not like looked into any climate things that have happened in Australia. Mm -hmm. And also there's just like coral reef stuff in Australia, um, which I'm not going to talk about. Maybe that will be another story for another day. But found a story from there. um, And I wanted to find an older story, too, just because there's so much online about youth activists, which is amazing. I love that. It's so cool. There are some really cool stories of stuff happening now, but it's hard to like tell someone's full story when it's happening. Mm-hmm. So I came upon the story of Yvonne Margarula and Jackie Katona um, and all that they did to stop the Jabaluka uranium mine. So my sources are The Conversation, a few YouTube videos about the Goldman Environmental Prize, a video called The Long Journey Home, Jackie Katona, the Goldman Prize website, and the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water, and the Environment, their website. So uh, just to clear the air and to get it out of my system before we get into anything, (laughs) you've seen at least parts of what what they do in the shadows, right? Yes. I didn't... Or what we do in the shadows? Yeah, I'm not seeing the connection immediately, but... Okay, so one of the people's names is Jackie Katona. And every single time I freaking read that name, I Matt Berry's character, Laszlo, has an episode where he's a bartender and he always his, his, named 
Jackie Daytona. <laughs> and he was always like, Jackie Daytona, human bartender. <laughs> and I every time I read it, I was like, Jackie K. Tona, human bartender. Um, That's amazing. And so every time I read that name um, in my notes right now, just know a little piece of my brain is saying that. And I just need to I just needed to say that. So you all are on the same page as me. Um, Absolutely has nothing to do with the story. The names aren't spelled the same. It's it's Katona, not Daytona. But again, every time I read it, I said that. And every time I will read it, I will think it in the back of my mind. Anyway, Jackie Katona was born in 1966. um, And her father was a Hungarian refugee who came to Australia. And her mother was Aboriginal. And her mother was taken away from her family when she was really young by social workers, which was absolutely devastating to her. The same kind of things uh, have happened in the U.S. and Canada of taking like children away from um, indigenous people mm. for like assimilation purposes, which is just devastating the worst. So growing up, Jackie and her mom thought that they didn't have any family because of this. Like she was just so cut out from all of that wow. and separated. So like I can imagine how isolating that was for them. And also it not only robbed them of like the culture that they should have been a part of but also rob them of a support system Mm -hmm. but Jackie's mom really emphasized education for her children and had like very ambitious visions for them which while I think that that pushed Jackie in a very good way it also caused a lot of tension between them because like a lot of that drive and a lot of you know that idea was had its roots in indoctrination Mm -hmm. and just like so much racism Um, Like her mom was very like conscious of like how they looked, how they talked very much in a a, like wanting to appear white Mm -hmm. because that was what was drilled into her as like being good um, as a kid. So like very, very harmful situation. But it also Jackie kind of had this vision laid out for her of doing big things, which was good. Mm -hmm. But in spite of any of that tension, um, things did seem pretty good for them. Um, The family lived in the Snowy Mountains, which are in New South Wales. Uh, So that's like southeastern Australia. And Jackie skied to school, which I just think is like very like cute and picturesque. Mm -hmm. And just like there's a tranquility to that that I love. Yeah, probably not as fun at like six in the morning (laughs) or whatever, but probably not. It was that's a like when I was when I was a kid, like, you know how to w- walk 10 miles mm-hmm. to school. She was like s- skiing through the snow. But like in my mind, it sounds very picturesque. And there was like definitely a cup of hot chocolate waiting on the other side, no matter what. <gasps> sounds delightful. That That's just how I'm picturing it in mm-hmm. my mind. I don't think that was probably the case. <laughs> but uh, when Jackie was 18, uh, she went up north to find her grandmother. And when she got there, she was just absolutely devastated by the conditions that her family was living under. They... Uh, were living in shacks with dirt floors. They didn't really have access to anything. I think probably very little access to electricity, basically just like not good conditions. And she was overwhelmed by this feeling of absolute helplessness Mm -hmm. that she was just completely useless to do anything to help them and do anything about what was happening. So she went back south determined to hone as many skills as she possibly could to improve their living conditions which i think i just want to like pause 
because I think it's very cool that that was the reaction that she had. She took this feeling of helplessness, like complete and utter helplessness, turned into this motivator and this opportunity that she could do something about it. Mm -hmm. And she was going to, which I just think is very cool because I think it's very easy to be like, I don't have any skills to help with this situation Mm -hmm. and feel really down and sad about that or just be like pushed into inaction or frozen. But she was like, no, not on my watch. This is unacceptable and I'm going to do something about Mm -hmm. it. So just thought that was cool that she spoke of it in like a motivating way. That was cool. And this is a grandmother that she like her mom hadn't really known. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it was her like mom, the the woman that her mother was taken away from. Yeah. And like, I assume she knew she existed, but like just the thought was so like she was so t- removed. Yeah. From I mean, that's her, just so her traumatic. immediate family that they didn't have that family growing up. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, like they were living in southeastern Australia and like the family, uh, her family was like up north. So it was just like opposite sides of the continent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, basically like they didn't even exist to them. Um, so mm-hmm. like she went back and like reconnected with them, which is really awesome. So Jackie basically did just that. She went, you know, she got the skills that she needed and then she got really involved with the Marar people who she, you know, went to visit in the 90s. And she met Yvonne, who was the traditional owner of the Marar land. And they made a great duo kind of because like Yvonne had the connection with the land and the knowledge of their traditions that were kind of robbed from Jackie's mom when she was taken away. And then Jackie had the knowledge of kind of like Western ways and she had the ability to advocate for the Marar people in those spaces. So kind of like she knew how to talk the talk and Yvonne saw that. And she trusted Jackie to speak for them because Mm -hmm. she was family. Uh, Like they're, I'm not exactly entirely sure how they're connected, but they are blood relatives, um, which is cool. But Jackie was working full time in Darwin, uh, which is a city in the area, uh, when Yvonne asked when Yvonne asked her to get more involved with her people and to take a position in the Gunjemi Aboriginal Corporation. Uh, I think I'm saying that correctly. Um, But on top of trying to improve living conditions, um, which was kind of her initial drive, it was important that Jackie was there to help them because something funky was happening on their land. So even though the Marar were the traditional owners of the land and should have been involved in any decision making about what was going on there. And even though Jabaluka, which is like the area where they lived, was stationed inside Kakadu National Park. Um, and even though that national park was considered a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so like mining isn't allowed there. Mm-hmm. Somehow, the mining company Energy Resources of Australia, or ERA, got the go-ahead from the Australian government to mine ura- mm. uranium there. So, like, there's just so many layers of, like, there, there in no way should be a mine allowed on this space. Like, not only are there indigenous people actively living in this space that should be consulted on anything... There's also like an incredible amount of biodiversity and like it's considered a world heritage site, a national park, like so many layers of protection. Yeah. Uranium mine. 
And then it's like, it's truly the horrific power of lobbying and money that like it can be that ridiculous, that obvious. Yeah. And still, it's like, oh yeah, you like, can do that. Go ahead. Like the government gets little dollar signs in their eyes and are like, mm-hmm. heck yeah. <laughs> so through 20 years of mining, it was clear that there was no benefit to the Marar people at all. So um, they got none of the opportunity from the mine. They got none of the jobs or money. And they basically only suffered from environmental destruction from the mine. So although the Marar people had lived in Kakadu for 40,000 years, which is just like is so mind boggling to me, like I don't like that a group of people could live in one spot for that long. Mm-hmm. Um, that amount of time is dwarfed in comparison to the 250,000 to 300,000 years it would take for the mining waste from whatever to stop being radioactive in the environment. Wow. So like, yeah, it's just like so much time. So essentially, like it would essentially never go away and continue to be a problem um, forever. Yeah. 250,000 years. Yeah, like 300,000 years. Like I, in terms of like a species being alive, like that's just forever. Mm-hmm. So in spite of these negative effects, the Marar were told that there was absolutely no discussion to be had and that the mining was going to be expanded through Kakadu and there's like nothing that they could do to stop it. So while Yvonne and the rest of the Marar didn't necessarily have the skills or the resources to challenge this, like, remember, their living conditions are terrible. Like, surviving is hard enough, let alone, like, taking on the government and mm-hmm. this, like, incredibly well-resourced group that is mining. But yeah, so basically, the Marar didn't have the resources to do anything about this, but this mine was not going to expand on Jackie's watch. So, and, and like... Yvonne knew that and was like, Jackie, mm-hmm. I think I think you should spend more time with us. Um, so together, Jackie and Yvonne launched a massive campaign to save their home. And this was a huge sacrifice for Jackie uh, at the time because she was starting a family. Mm. Uh, basically, any time that she spent on this campaign was time away from her kids. But she did it anyway because she knew like it was worth it. So they approached this problem from a lot of different angles. They took legal action, they focused on education, and they reached out to people locally as well as working on, you know, getting global attention for the issue. And at this time, a poll showed that 67% of Australians opposed the mining in Kakadu. Um, But even though that was the case, the mining continued. Again, imagine if like any national park, you slapped a big old uranium mine, cleared the trees, like like no one's gonna be unless you're like benefiting from it and profiting like that that just sounds bad like what no sounds devastating yeah so in 1998 the duo teamed up with a whole bunch of environmental organizations for a civil disobedience action and they organized the biggest blockade in australian history at the mines wow so over the next few months around 5,000 people came from across the country and across the world to support the cause. And in July of 1998, ERA cleared the land and started the expansion, but protesters intervened. 
and about 550 of them were arrested for trespassing on their own land, um, including Jackie, who served prison time for it. Again, huge sacrifice because it wasn't just her. She had small children. Yeah. But basically at this point, like that's like, again, biggest blockade in Australian history, I think to this day. And so many people were arrested that it was just too big to ignore. And in October of 1998, the World Heritage Committee went to inspect the mining site with the intention of declaring Kakadu a World Heritage Site that was in danger, which is a really big deal. And it would look really bad for Australia. Hmm. So I also just like I, I looked at a list of World Heritage Sites that are in danger because I was just like, how many are in danger? Like, and why? And a lot are in danger because of war, but there's also a lot that are in danger due to development, environmental destruction, stuff hmm. like that. So I'll, I'll include that link in our sources just because I think it's interesting. Yeah. Is it like dozens or hundreds? Uh, is it a lot? It's it's a good amount. And it also lists ones that were endangered in the past. I mean, it's probably like 30 something. Like, okay. like there's a there's a, like a couple dozen. I'll I'll put it in the chat just in case you want it. <laughs> it's not that important, but it's I I just think it's interesting and honestly could be an interesting source of like stories in the future because a lot are yeah, national parks thinking. um and stuff um and again like there's a lot of like structures and like old ancient buildings and things um that are like in the path of war like the Syrian civil war has like four that four different things that are in danger because of that hmm. so just kind of interesting but like it's a big deal like for a world heritage site to be uh, in danger so as soon as they were like uh we're gonna come and do that <laughs> australia was like fuck um <laughs> <laughs> oh no uh we can't have that that is just gonna look really bad for you they're like, can't you see how obviously this is a bad idea influenced by money <laughs> <laughs> they're like you guys guys uh bad idea so basically they came and we're like we're we're gonna say that it's in danger and yeah so basically the idea of this or just like almost honestly like the news from the like potential of the world heritage committee declaring it in danger that gained so much international attention that again, it was like a, a, a shameful thing for Australia and every, every all eyes on this. And then Australia was like, well, uh, I guess we got to stop this. <laughs> um, and yeah, that the mining was halted in 1999 and put on standby for the next several years. And basically for their efforts, Yvonne Margarula and Jackie Katona were awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize for 1999. Uh, and I'll link their acceptance speech because I, I love them together. And I think it's really cool because Jackie's acceptance speech is kind of like what you would imagine an acceptance speech, you know, for this kind of honor would be. But Yvonne, who I, like she speaks English, um, like she sp was speaking in the little like short documentary clip that I watched. And it's not like the most eloquent like English, but like she had subtitles on in the documentary. And I was like, you can she's she's speaking fine. Mm hmm. Like I, it, she's speaking very well. Yeah. But she uh, gave the speech in her native language through an interpreter, mm. which I thought was really cool. Um, and I, I don't I don't know. I feel like it's 
so interesting. And I think I love them together so much because I feel like even though like Jackie like was able to communicate with the world because of like something traumatic that happened to her family, mm-hmm. that kind of enabled Yvonne to like get on this like global stage and speak and like completely be herself, like speak in her native language and be yeah. heard and listened to, which I think is just like really cool. I don't I don't know. Like it's hard for me to even like say exactly no, what I'm thinking like- there but like they just their people were victims are victims of colonization and have been for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and they both experienced that hardship from different angles either being taken out of it and forced to assimilate to the culture or being fully immersed in the culture but being starved of resources because of it and then they come mm-hmm. together and like make this amazing change and they're just like seen together for how they are I, I don't know I just think it's really cool. I love them. No, I love that. I love them. It's very wholesome to me and very triumphant at the same time, I think. I think it's so important that she used her native language mm-hmm. too, even if she speaks English, because uh, I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was someone at COP26 that was like, you know, speaks fluent um, English and probably Spanish too and was like, I'm not going to use the language of the colonizer because mm-hmm. like, I want you to understand my language and obviously there's subtitles or translators or something so that they can be understood yeah i mean in any language but like i really respect when especially non-native english speaking activists acknowledge the language barrier and the language Mm -hmm. um like colonialism honestly that happens because it's it's so influential and like to think that something hasn't been done just because it hasn't been done in the english-speaking world Mm -hmm. or the english-speaking world yeah. is so like naive and kind of like a westernized thinking but it's one mm-hmm. something that I often end up accidentally doing whatever yeah um so I think that's really cool yeah no 100% so like I love that I'll link the speech I think it's awesome but after this the mine stayed on standby until 2003 when it was decided that there would no longer be mining in Kakadu and that Jabaluka would be placed under long-term care and maintenance. And I found a a picture of trees regrowing over the mine site over the last decade or so. So Mm -hmm. I'll share those on socials. And ERA still has their lease until 2024. So the mine won't be officially closed until then. But that's coming up. No mining has occurred since 1999. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty definitive win for indigenous people for biodiversity for this national park wow but that is also crazy how did they i guess they got that lease in the first place like a 25 or something year lease from the government like i guess it was i mean it was like 20 years up to the 90s so i'm assuming maybe like the late 70s early 80s is when the the lease was signed so i guess they got like a Unless it was, like, renewed, Mm. they had that lease for, like, 45 years. Wow. So that's pretty wild that that was agreed to. And again, like, there are so many layers of protection for this space. Mm -hmm. And all of them were... Ignored. Ignored. And again, like, almost 70% of Australians were like, no, that's fucked up. Like, we don't agree. And yeah, but it was shut down. And I'm so happy I found this story because I just I think it's awesome and really cool. Mm-hmm. And I love that it's about Jackie, like looking for her roots, finding them and then like 
absolutely being a voice for her people and that that brought about such definitive change. And a really cool partnership between the two of them too because they both had something that the other didn't have or like wasn't a strength of theirs. Exactly. So which is why I love them together and they're like Mm -hmm. they're like pictured together a lot and I just I just love it. I need to see Um, it. Yes. I'll, I'll send you I'll send you a photo. And it'll be on our social media. Yeah. And it will absolutely be on our social media. But yeah, so I found another article where Jackie shares tips for people looking to enact similar change. So I thought mm. I'd kind of go through that. Yes, please. It, it, do, it will add like more details to the story. But I just thought it was cool to kind of like include those in this these tips that she has because we're all looking for tips on how to how to how to do this. Yes. So. Her first tip is to put pressure on the financial sector. So in working to shut down the Jabaluka mine, they discovered Westpac uh, was financing ERA. So Mm. they protested outside of those banks, both raising awareness and creating bureaucratic chaos by shutting down the banks. We love bureaucratic chaos. (laughs) So and like this seems like it's a pretty popular method right now with like fossil fuels. Mm hmm. Stop the money pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. Like divestment campaigns and everything. But mm-hmm. like, I, I do think it's a good tip. Absolutely. If even like a local issue, like find where the money is. And if you can at, even just, yeah, like be annoying around mm-hmm. that, it'll raise awareness. Her second tip is to join a strong organization or alliance. So they were able to shut down the mine by partnering with a whole bunch of organizations and by collecting all that power together rather than like going after individual people um, and spreading the word that way. I mean, I feel like we constantly say this um, whenever we're talking Mm -hmm. about like, how do you get involved? That joining a climate organization is probably the best way to get started if you don't know where to start or even if you do. Mm-hmm. But like I just as an example, like I know my local 350 chapter is working on dealing with the effects of a coal plant that's affecting people negatively. So like it's kind of a similar situation. I'm sure like mm-hmm. those people reach out to 350 and like that's how they're gaining more power in the situation. Mm-hmm. So you can get plugged into hyper local problems without like having to seek them out yourself. You never know. You might stop a mine from happening. Yeah, this is actually a really good time of year too. Like um I know a lot of local climate groups in New York like Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, um the No uh Brooklyn Pipeline team mm-hmm. are all like doing some form of like orientation. A lot of them larger groups do like orientations once a month, but I feel like the winter is a good time to get like dip your feet in, see what you like because then obviously when you can be outside more in the summer there tends to be more action mm-hmm. um, or like people are working a little bit less and stuff. I feel like a lot of actions tend to happen at their peak in the summer. So, yeah. So good tip there. Definitely do that. And her third tip is to uh, hit them where it hurts, the hip pocket, <laughs> uh, which it sounds similar to the first tip, but it's different. So she says the Marars campaign was one of the first to use shareholder activism. So they had people... Mm-hmm lobbying from inside the project itself to advocate for protesters demands and this caused the share prices of era to plummet from six australian dollars to two australian dollars which certainly got the company's attention and it caused them to have no choice but to listen uh and to take greater steps towards corporate responsibility so that's awesome kind of just like forced their hand from the inside 
whether or not they took that advice or like, you know, would have done anything about it to be better, actually, uh, if like the World Heritage people hadn't been like, we're going to make your whole country look bad. Who's to say? But like it certainly got there. (laughs) All of them listening Mm -hmm. because their shares were just crashing. Her fourth tip is to win over the right people. So kind of adding on to the last tip, changing public opinion is obviously super important. But if you can kind of just win over more powerful groups like the media or investor groups, that is going to pack a pretty big punch and also like might be more effective time wise if you're if you go target people with more power and get them on your side, kind of like people will follow. And her fifth tip is there's never a perfect time to act. So like, as I mentioned, Jackie had two small kids at the time that the Jabaluka campaign was happening. So it was really hard for her. And she also was suffering some pretty severe complications from lupus that put her in the hospital. So like not an ideal time to like create this, like have this huge campaign, get arrested, all this stuff. So she said, you know, be strategic with your energy and your participation, which also I think that goes off of the last tip of like use your energy to get like the big players. If you if you have limited energy, which everyone does, Mm -hmm. like if you can get a couple big people, that'll be more effective than like running around door to door, which can also be very effective. But like, you know, if you only have so much time Mm -hmm. um, that worked for her. But (laughs) she yeah, she says, yeah, be strategic with your energy and participation but also know when you need to do more than changing your profile picture. So mm-hmm. uh, calling some people out there, Jackie. But her last tip is to believe you can win. She says Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have faced hundreds of years of colonization, industrial desecration of sacred lands and uh, destruction of their country. Uh, however, in many cases, they have won battles against the odds. So like, in their case, even if a mine is has already been operating for two decades, like that doesn't mean you can't stop it now. Mm-hmm. So like go for it and like believe that you can do it because they did and they yeah. made it work. So those are her little tips for how to do better at activism. I love those. Or get involved or whatever. And, you know, I, I love that she was sharing those. So, yeah, that's their story. Um, And that was great. Time Time to get into our our Jane Fonda eras, our Yvonne Margula and Jackie Katona eras. Yes. The ones where we're like, I don't know anything right now, but you know what? I hate this and it has to stop. Not yes. on my watch. And I'm going to reach out to the people that do know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And then we're going to use our energy to make something happen. Yeah. Hell yeah. So I, yeah, I just really enjoyed yeah. watching her speak and... I don't know what the next like phrase could be because it's like I feel like it's a mix of this optimism in like a hopeful era. Yeah. But also mixed with like very dark humor and like I don't know. I deal with this sometimes because I hate climate doom. However, yeah. like climate memes that can be very doomist, I love. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like, how do you combine those into something? It's like, I don't know, our yeah. sardonic era or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, like I I, I know like a couple climate feminist um, things that I really enjoy. Like one, mm-hmm. the All We Can Say book. Super good. Mothers of Invention too. Yeah. And Mothers of Invention was my other one, which also it's, there's a comedian on that podcast. So it is, it's a combination of humor, 
and knowledge, which it's also the former Irish prime minister. Mary Robinson. Yes, Mary Robinson. Yes, I was blanking on her name. But like it's this really cool combination of like humor, knowledge. So it's like kind of lighthearted, but it's also like so informative. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't know what the future of feminism, climate feminism looks like, Mm -hmm. but I think those are good examples. Uh, Our stories are good examples. And also the things that we just mentioned are good examples of like, what does that look like? And it also Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be super serious, but it could also be positive. Yeah. Um, Oh, gosh, there was a Jane Fonda quote. I wish I had pulled it out. But truly, there were so many I had to stop myself. uh But she was talking about like bringing joy into her activism Mm -hmm. or how activism has brought joy and like humor into her life. Mm-hmm. Because she's hilarious. I mean, if you've watched Grace and Frankie or 9 to 5 or anything that she's done, you mm-hmm. know how funny she is. But I think that she's actually a really great example of like being very socially engaged, but also mm-hmm. like having a good time, which is kind of yeah. what we're all about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just think that's something to to mull over. Like, mm-hmm. does your Fleabag era feel good? Does your villain face feel good? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, (laughs) let's have a good time yes so that's basically all I have to say about that for the time being (laughs) good good job um let's go to the dump yeah let's go to the dump is anything going on with you because I'm just like still sick and just trying to be alive uh I will give a shout out to hot toddies I've been drinking a lot of (laughs) steroids and steroids (laughs) um responsibly that are I've gotten me a little bit of the way better, but it always takes me forever to get over a cough. So we're still here. Sorry for my gross voice this whole time. No, you did great. But yeah, I've just been trying to live. And, <laughs> and <laughs> I can relate to that. And I've been um, reading all the same things that, that we mentioned last time. Ooh, I will. I will. When I listen to audiobooks, I a lot of times I think it's interesting because I don't get as many quotes like I know for like it's a warmth quote. Mm. I don't always get as many, but the things that stick out of a book really stick out to me. Mm. And uh, again, like I feel like this episode is a little bit talking about what to do with our emotions and how we feel like every episode about is. life. And it's a, it's a, <laughs> the podcast for your climate anxiety. <laughs> of course, we're going to talk about it every episode. But basically, I think he was talking about being at a protest or something. And obviously, mm-hmm. all of this is a letter to his kid. And he said, I, I knew that I loved you then and love felt a little like fury, which mm-hmm. I thought was such a good quote. And that's honestly how I feel a lot or how I've been feeling a lot lately. And I I don't know if we mentioned if I mentioned that in our climate despair episode, mm-hmm. but I do often feel like I feel like I skip over doom and sadness and go straight to being just like pissed, pissed. Mm-hmm. and just <laughs> and that's been like my primary emotion about everything maybe um, that's our next climate emotions minisode is how to deal with your climate range channel it yeah <laughs> but i feel that definitely I thought that that was a good quote yeah everyone needs to read warmth by daniel Cheryl. i've still been saving the. i'm gonna finish it this weekend when there's supposed to be like a big snowstorm in new york um so finish, i finish didn't want any plans cold i really oh nice yeah. nice nice i can always count on you to bring in the puns <laughs> um i haven't been i don't know not, not that much has changed in the last week because we recorded our last episode only like 
eight days ago or something. But Mm -hmm. I did finish How to Do Nothing, which I mentioned very briefly in the last episode. I listened to that on audiobook too. And now I just want to like give such a rousing. I don't know. Everyone needs to read that book. It was published before the pandemic started. So there's no like mention of the pandemic. But thank um, God, honestly. Yeah. Well, it's kind of nice, but it's like it's called How to Do Nothing, um, Surviving the Attention Economy. And Mm -hmm. she brings in a lot of, I, I don't know, a lot of different elements that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like she brings in the writing of the book a lot. So she like okay. would go to parks um, to think about her work or she would go on these retreats and like be out and hiking and you no know, internet access. And she talks about how that not doing anything is is also a part of her writing process and talks about mm-hmm. like authors that have many, many authors have said the same thing and just kind of escaping from the like the whatever nine to five like work lifestyle like nine to five and then be on your phone from five to 11 and then you go Mm -hmm. to bed and then you immediately wake up in the morning and you're on your phone again not Mm -hmm. to say that like it's not to say quit your nine to five job it's actually not about that at all but Mm -hmm. she brings in a lot of social movements and I listened to it on audiobook too and I was gonna see I like had to pause it and like go back 15 seconds like six times to get some of the quotes Mm -hmm. in there because there's just so many really interesting ideas in it um, and I feel like for me, always around this time of year, I'm trying to reevaluate my relationship with technology and the ways that it's serving me and the ways that mm-hmm. it's not. Um, when the social media, but also just like screens and technology in general. Mm-hmm. And that book was helping me kind of parse through some of those thoughts. And I feel like at least in the last few weeks, I've had a healthier relationship with those devices and like mm-hmm. acknowledging where you know, I wish that I could use devices, but I'm not quite there yet. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's one of the things was like, give yourself the critical break that media cycles will not give you. And like kind of mm-hmm. making those breaks for yourself so that you're not like always fully immersed. Yeah. Um, but Honestly, then she also, yeah. I've been doing that with listening to news. Cause I, I, a lot, I generally will start the day or like listen to up first in the daily as I'm getting mm. ready and, and like their Exxon ads <laughs> and their Exxon ads um but yeah like I'll listen to those and I feel like it's always important to stay informed and I feel like those two podcasts are good at like giving an overview so like if mm-hmm. there are other news articles I see like I have something to kind of plug it into and I've been still listening to those but there's a lot that I'm like a topic that I already feel like I know enough about or like I'm just like I just don't want to hear about that right now I've been right skipping it um because especially like I feel like pandemic stuff can get like really redundant like I'm sorry I don't need to listen to another 15 minutes of like how we're doing on the pandemic Mm because bad the bad Mm -hmm. we're we're doing bad that's that's Mm -hmm. the news I don't need to know more details than that to like function yeah so I've just yeah been giving myself a little pass with the news because it never stops yeah Um, and it's a lot of the same information over and over again yes or yeah just not like not conducive to like making you feel like you can do something okay but so I was really badly no no no. I was really badly summarizing how to do nothing and I was like I need to look back on what she said Uh um or what I thought it helped me with even if I can't articulate it right now but it's like okay not a question of whether to participate but how Mm -hmm. And allowing yourself to believe in another world while living in this one. So, like, um, how to participate. Like, 
the first half of the book is she's talking a lot about communes and how like this okay. fantasy of like trying to go to your own utopia or like only like be with the people that exactly have the same beliefs in you and how that like rejection of participation actually uh-huh. turns out terribly like in some yeah. t- cases them turning into cults and then in other cases just like becoming really out of touch mm-hmm. and I I just loved that like idea that you're still allowed to participate it's just like engaging with how you participate and like where where it benefits society and where it benefits you so yeah mm-hmm. recommend that book go read it also <laughs> I started watching how I met your father have how, you okay I keep getting so many ads for it and a lot of times my volume is off and it looks like the acting is like so terrible it's is it so, so terrible corny it's it so corny but I love it it is very corny Mm-hmm. And like I watched the first episode with my roommates who we watch all different kinds of things with. I'm not like self-conscious about what I watch in front of them. Yeah. But I was even like, oh, this is just so corny. Like I can barely yeah. handle this. I know my dad hates corny shows. He would not be able to watch this. But then I watched the next two episodes last night and I was just like having the time of my life. That's awesome. Because it's Hilary Duff plays like the protagonist. I don't even know what her name is. She's like a 29-year-old photographer. She lives with a roommate. Um, mm-hmm. She like meets these guys that own a bar and live in like the old um, one of the old apartment sets from like um, How I Met Your Mother. Mm-hmm. And it's just cute. It's like talking about dating. They live. It's like talking about 2022, which the older version of Hillary Duff is Kim Cattrall, which is just like iconic. Okay. Um, and they're talking about it as if the pandemic never happened or I don't know if they'll ever acknowledge it, but like certainly their 2022 is not like our 2022. Gotcha. Um, and it's I think it'll be a really good like escapist show. Very corny, I love like storylines that I don't find like incredibly relatable, even as a like mid to late 20 something living in New York with roommates like and dating. Yeah. I should be able to like relate to more of it. But um, I, I think in its like ridiculousness, it's very charming so I if you're that. looking for like a cute show and you like Hillary Duff which mm-hmm. who doesn't um yeah I would recommend it yeah it's so funny too because I know I know there was talk about a Lizzie McGuire reboot mm-hmm. and she was just like I want her to be an actual adult and they're like that's inappropriate and she was like then like not gonna do it so it, I don't yeah. I wonder if that's like almost the like Lizzie McGuire that we we never got. No, I think it was a direct response. I think so. Maybe my headcanon will just be like, this is Lizzie McGuire, actually. Yeah. It's really not that far from the truth. I think it would be very accurate. <laughs> if her parents ever... Oh, actually, no. They do talk a little bit about her parents, and it sounds like a very different childhood, but... Okay. But, like, headcanon can stay. Yeah. I'm just going to ignore it. But yeah. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I will watch it. Uh, that's that's a perfect kind of show to watch while um, I'm, like, listing stuff for my shop. Mm-hmm. online writing descriptions and stuff I'll, yeah. I'll go between uh that and succession which i just started i'm two episodes mm. in. wait you're only two episodes okay maybe we should watch it together maybe yeah you can <laughs> very out of touch we won't talk about it on here this is the podcast that we talk about other stuff and then we talk about the things <laughs> that are like everyone's already watched um and, and we're we watching them how out of touch we are <laughs> Finally catching up. And then it'll, it'll be fine because then we could talk about it and no one will be mad that we're spoiling things for them. Yeah. Because it's everyone already watched it. I will say one thing that has been bringing me a lot of joy and that is um, like 
bagels and toast and <laughs> I don't know I um, wasn't expecting you to say <laughs> I know that's how I figured I did <laughs> the dramatic pause before bagels <laughs> yes um I have been making like I had a couple bagels with ricotta and I mm. put blueberries on it and I drizzled it with honey and put a little salt and pepper on the top <gasps> and it was such it's like so simple and easy but it felt like such a, like a beautiful indulgent breakfast mm-hmm. And I would just highly recommend that to anyone if you're looking for something absolutely delicious and like feels fancy, but is n- not. Yeah. Also, I will say um, Kite Hill is like a more expensive, but like worth it vegan plant-based cheese brand. And they have a okay. ricotta that was on sale. It was like $5 once at my grocery store. And so I bought a bunch of it. It is Ooh, so good. Okay. Good to know. Kite Hill. So if you see okay. that one. And you want to try something or you can't eat dairy for whatever reason. Yeah. Do it. I was eating real ricotta because I'm like, that's okay. There's enough that is going on that I can just treat myself with some ricotta. No, you don't need to justify it, but just vegetarian for like, uh, like, yeah, like 16 years now. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) I think I'm fine. I can eat some ricotta. Um, I think so too. But Um, yeah, so that was just, it was just so good. And I'm like, it's a kind of thing that I keep. I just want to eat more. So I'm I'm having okay. Forget your flea bag era. I'm having ricotta. my ricotta bagel era. <laughs> okay. And I'm living. Yes. <laughs> it's like reclaiming. It's like if you thought the avocado toast was ex- excessive, let me one let up me you. one up your toast. Um, and you know what? We're gonna find joy in breakfast, and we're gonna eat food because yes. we're <laughs> people. Great. I don't know and feminism. I don't know. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's all I have. <laughs> I love that. That's what I've been enjoying. That's um, great. Let's put yeah. in the, all the social media. Let's just be our yes. ricotta toast era. No one ricotta knows. hashtag ricotta toast era. Should I do our social? Yeah, let's do our, let's Sorry. Do <laughs> I wasn't sure if that's what was happening. I w- no, I was like, I was like envisioning a, a TikTok of, that will maybe, maybe I'll post on our <laughs> social media that will make absolutely no sense for a climate yeah, podcast, but I'll be like the feminine urge to like, eat ricotta blueberry bagels and uh, unhinged feminism that's dream of a better future um i feel it yeah i'll make some maybe i'll buy some ricotta at the grocery store before (laughs) the storm and then yeah it'll be great okay (laughs) our socials you can contact us if you listen to this and want to know more about us that would be surprising but um (laughs) we're on twitter and instagram at world is burning no g um we're also on tiktok at world is burning with a g we have a website, worldsburning.com, where we put all of our show notes, our sources, everything. There's also a contact form on there. We're on this burning pod at gmail.com. Do you hear that? Mm-hmm. Is um, it snowing? Or is it just no, it's like it's like in my own headphones. It sound, it's like... <laughs> anyways, it's <laughs> no. fine. Uh, you can cut this out. Okay. Uh, well, Rose Burning Pod. Yeah. Worldsburningpod at gmail.com. We post lots of fun things on social media. This will be a good TikTok time, I can tell, yes. with these two stories. So follow us on there. And yeah, um, we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.